0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for forming her through your own blood. Thank you that you have counted us to be a part of her through the righteousness of Christ. And Lord God, pray as we dig into your word today, pray that you would, you would expose the sin in our hearts, And lead us in the path of righteousness for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In June of 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, also known as ISIS, captured Mosul, one of Iraq's largest cities. And after capturing the city, they started to go throughout the city, finding the businesses and the homes of Christians and putting... The Arabic letter N, which looks like an U with a dot in it and there's a circle around it, and it's pronounced noon and it stands for Nazarene or Nasirani. Did I pronounce that correctly? Nasirani? You don't know. Okay. And the Arabic word, which is the Arabic word for Christian, and those who had the letter N marked on their house or on their business had three options they could either convert to Islam pay outrageous taxes, or be killed. Many Christians chose a fourth option and fled. A few weeks ago, the Voice of the Martyrs website reports a recent tragedy in Syria. It said this, After stating their names and where they were from, three Assyrian Christians wearing orange jumpsuits were shot in the back of the head as they knelt in the desert sand. The next scene of a video released by the self-proclaimed Islamic State ISIS on October 7th shows three additional Assyrian brothers in Christ kneeling before the bodies, lying in the bloody sand. As the masked ISIS fighters stand behind them with pistols in their right hands, the men share their names. But before their names, each hostage said, I am Nasrani. Again, a derogatory Muslim term. For Christians. According to one website, each month over 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, either being beaten or abducted or raped or arrested or forced into marriages. Each month, 214 churches or church Christian properties are destroyed. Each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Each month, 322 Christians killed for their faith. More than what's, being, what's sitting in this room today. The question we face today in this passage is how should Christians respond to persecutions? How should we repay those who persecute us? And this is the question that Peter is addressing Today And so if you would please open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, it's page 1015 in the Red Bible, page 1317 in the Children's Bible. Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor that are not only suffering, but suffering because of their faith. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them to stay strong in the Lord, even in the midst of their suffering. And in today's passage, as I mentioned, he's going to share with them how they might repay those who do evil against them. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 22 today, which is a long passage, and we're going to break it up. Verse 8 through 17 gives us the answer to how we should respond to those who persecute us. And then verse 18 through 22 gives us two examples. So first, we're just going to start by reading verses 8 through 17. So read along with me, if you would. First Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviors in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about your church, persecuted from many sides, Lord, give us the response of Christ in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of the commentators in looking at 1 Peter assign a date to 1 Peter that would say that it happened before the most horrific persecutions happened. That that 1 Peter was written when the rumblings of the persecution of the church started. Before they were being martyred for their faith, they were being alienated, excluded from friends, passed over for promotions, ridiculed, and dismissed by neighbors as fools. And this is probably the context that Peter is writing into. When we think of persecution, we so often think about what is happening in Assyria and in the Middle East. But Peter is writing to an audience that is much more like America than it is like Syria. It is subtle forms of persecution, subtle payments for their faith. Even in America, we face persecution we may think that it is only something that happens overseas and certainly that is horrific what is happening but there is persecution for our faith that happens even here in america let me give you a sum, a couple of examples christian professors in academic settings that believe there is an intelligent designer often have to keep it to themselves because they could be fired Christians in the government field who decided that marriage is between a man and a woman and refused to give a certificate of marriage to any other is put in prison. Christians that run companies with the same belief are mocked and picketed and sued. Christian companies that refuse to finance any insurance that would support abortions for their employees are pressed into court where they are prosecuted. Christians that believe that salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ are seen as narrow-minded and judgmental. In America, we aren't given the label Nasrani's, but we are labeled born-again's or Jesus-freaks or Bible thumpers or religious extremists. And in our spheres, persecution may not come in the form of death or destruction of property, but it comes in the form of slander or dismissing you as unintelligent or potentially leaving you out of conversations or promotions. And so the question we want to look at this way this week is how should we respond When we are persecuted or excluded or dismissed or slandered because of our faith? And in general, how should we respond when others do evil against us? And so let's look together at 1 Peter 3, verse 9, and seeing how we should repay evil. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called. Skip down to verse 17. Peter's talking about the response to persecution. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Jesus reinforces this in Matthew 5 when he says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray. Pray for those who persecute you. The simple answer, the short answer as to how we are to repay evil is that we are to repay evil with good. Now, this is very easy in theory, but when somebody slanders your name through telling lies or telling half-truths, it is very difficult to repay that person with good. And so Peter informs us, since we this doesn't come naturally and how we can repay evil with good. And the first thing he shows us is that we can repay evil with good works. In verse 9, again, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For this you were called. To bless somebody is to pronounce a wish of, wish of happiness or prosperity upon them. For Christians, this means to pray for them. To pray that the Lord would bless their endeavors. To pray that the Lord would reconcile our relationships with them. To pray, most of all, that the Lord would save their soul. And according to verse 9 and Peter, this command to bless them is not a recommendation. But it is a calling put upon all who trust in Christ. It's reinforced in verse 11 when it says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We are to do good towards our enemies, towards those who hate us, to those who persecute us. It means sharing our time or our talent or our treasures with our enemy, that they might be well, to help them out of a bind, to care for them, to love for them. To seek peace may mean going to them and even repenting to them of your sin, even though they don't repent of their sin. We're called to do good, but we're also called to repay evil with good words, not just good works. Verse 9 again, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling is a term that simply means abusive or insulting talk. When somebody smears your name, when they discredit you, when they make you look bad, we're not to respond in like fashion. Verse 10 goes on, says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That is guile. That is tricky talk to speak poorly about another person. Have you ever done that? Where you say, please pray for Bob. He has an anger issue. Or pray for Susie. She's weird. (laughs) And you have these little, subtle, hidden ways of ruining a person's reputation. And he warns us against that. And then he says in verse 15 that we should not only speak evil, but we should also speak good. He says, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The Greek word for defense in this passage is the word apologia, which Christians get the term apologetics. If you haven't heard this before, apologetics is not Christians apologizing for their faith, but it's us defending the reasonableness of our faith. And contrary to popular opinion, apologetics is not simply an intellectual exercise in which we form all these figures and all these facts to prove that what we believe is true. But apologetics is something far greater than that. We see here that according to verse 15, that apologetics is defending a hope that lives inside of you. And so when we are suffering... Our hope is exposed to us and to those around us. If our hope is in good health, if our hope is in money, if our hope is in fame, if our hope is in life and it's taken away from us. Then we will be miserable people. But if our hope is in Christ and we suffer Our joy can surge because Christ is one thing that no one can ever take away from us. And so when we suffer, when we are squeezed by persecution, what comes out of us is our hope. And for Christians, the hope that should come out of us is Christ. This means that if you want to be an effective evangelist, your top priority is is to be happy in Jesus, to be joyful in Jesus, to delight in Jesus. It is good and it is right to understand the scriptures, to be able to defend your faith. But if it does not live inside of you, if the hope does not overflow out of you, it is a defense that is in words only and not in the transformation of a life. A great example of this, I think, is the story of the woman at the well. If you've been through membership class, you've heard this story in much detail. But the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus is talking to Jesus and listening to Jesus and engaging in Jesus. While at the same time, Jesus' disciples are in the town of Sychar. And they go into the town and they come out of the town and nobody in the town has changed. They have all the theological knowledge that any person on earth probably has because they've been sitting underneath their teacher, Jesus. But then you have this one woman, this Samaritan woman who encounters Jesus and whose hope surges and who's overflowing with joy, goes back in the town and says, you have to come meet this man. And they come out and the whole town believes. And it wasn't merely because she knew all the right answers. In fact, I'm guessing she didn't. But it was because of the hope that was inside of her and it was mysterious to the people in the city and they had to check out and they had to see and they had to wonder why is this woman full of such hope. There's a new friend of mine who has started attending Jacobswell recently and I had the privilege of sitting with them and and praying with them to receive Christ. And I. And I asked them their story. And as they shared their story, one of the things they said is, I never wanted to come to church. I'm not a Bible beater. I didn't want to come to church. But my friend kept asking me to come. And so I asked, why did you come to church? If you were so against coming to church, why did you finally come to church? And the response was, I saw something in my friend that I wanted. I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't sure how to get it. But I knew I wanted that in my life. You see, what is the greatest testimony of Christ is not a perfectly worked out theology, but it's a transformed heart and a transformed person. And then evangelism is not just a program. It's not just an outline, but it's an overflow of the joy of your heart. And so how should we respond to evil done against us? We repay it with good works, by being generous with those who hurt us, who hate us. With good words, hoping in Jesus, being happy in Jesus, and being ready to tell others of the hope that we have because of Jesus. The second question is, why should we do this? Why should we repay evil with good? Especially when a harsh word and revenge and bitterness and anger feels so good. Why should we repay evil with good? And we're going to see two reasons. One is because God blesses righteousness. And the other is because God punishes wickedness. First, God blesses righteousness. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter is is laying out a principle, not a promise. He is saying if you are zealous for goodness... People will not set out to hurt you generally, right? The authorities are put in place not to punish those who do what's right, but to do what's wrong. And so if you're zealous for doing what is good, that is the most peaceful way to live. But that is not always the case. And that's why Peter goes on in verse 14 and he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake even if you should suffer to, for living for Christ, even if you should suffer for standing on the word of God, even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you will be blessed. You may not be blessed by those who live around you, but you will be blessed by God. And this is a guarantee. This is not just a principle. This is, is a promise. And that's why we read in verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. How are we blessed when we repay evil with good? Well, we're not necessarily blessed with the end of suffering. persecution right but we are blessed in the most wonderful ways in our intimacy with god verse 12 says for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer it's not that god just sees you or hears you he sees and hears everybody but that he is looking after those who suffer righteously. That he's caring for those who suffer righteously. That he's drawing near to those who suffer righteously. And the blessing is not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Jesus, who really sums up what 1 Peter, Peter says in verse Matthew 5.10, says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I don't know about you, but... But when I am slandered against, when people say bad things about me, I don't feel so blessed. But Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No matter what suffering comes our way. Righteous response brings the blessing of God. If the persecution is being simply dismissed from a group or a job or whatever it might be, we will be blessed because God will draw close to us in our time of need. But if the persecution results in our death, then we have the greatest reward of all, the greatest blessing of all to be with Christ. Paul said it this way for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what suffering comes our way, we will be blessed by God. Suffering comes to all people. But blessing comes to those who are in Christ. And so we should not repay evil with evil, but evil with good, because God blesses righteousness, but also because God punishes wickedness. Look in verse 12 with me. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 12 is quoting Psalm 34, which is talking about how There will be a verdict of judgment on those who do evil, how their names will be wiped out from the face of the earth. Verse 16 goes on. Peter says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The purpose is not that you're doing good things so that they'll be put to shame. But what Peter is saying here is that you do not have to defend your name because God will defend your name on the day of judgment. You don't have to repay evil with evil because God will bring justice and judgment upon those who do evil against you. Vengeance does not belong to you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. You know, when I was a kid, I used to play basketball in my friend Justin's backyard and it was just me and him or me and a couple other kids. And it was very hard to play basketball without a referee because we all had our opinion of what happened on the court. And so, you know, I would take a shot or he would take a shot and someone would call a foul. And we'd say, that wasn't a foul. Come on. And then we'd start fighting and then we would just end the game like that. And we'd be walk home. We walk home angry because there's no one there to decide if what was happening was just or unjust, if there should be a foul or if there shouldn't be a foul. Well, some of you may know um, Mike Williams, and he's he's a guy who always dresses nicer than the preacher and uh Mike is a a basketball referee. And one time I asked Mike, I said, why do you referee basketball? And I thought it was one of the best responses I ever heard. And I won't have it word for word, but he said something along the lines of, I love being a basketball referee because for 40 minutes within the boundaries of that court, I get to bring justice into the world. I love that. Did I get it somewhat right, Mike? is it close? 32 32 minutes. Okay. (laughs) I love being a basketball referee because for 32 minutes within the boundaries of that court, I get to bring a little justice into the world. And you know, as great as a referee, as Mike might be, he's still not Omnipresent. He doesn't see everything that happens on the court. He misses calls, maybe some. And I'm sure the fans are happy to help you out with it. But God is the perfect referee. God doesn't miss anything. There is no evil done against you that God does not see, that will not be punished, either by the person who's doing the evil against you or by Christ if they trust in Him as their Savior. And so we don't have to repay evil with evil. We don't have to repay evil with justice because God will enact his justice on the day of judgment. Romans 12 says this very well. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Can't talk about that part today. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We do not need to repay evil with evil. We can repay it with good because we know the Lord is. Is the perfect referee who will call every foul and will penalize everyone as they deserve. Now, Peter has given us some difficult commands to love our enemies, to repay evil with good. And he's given us some audacious promises that God will bless those who do what is right. And he will punish those who do wicked. Now, that is hard to believe in when it is a tense situation. And so Peter gives us two examples of how this works in God's economy. And the first example is Noah. And the second example is Jesus. And so let's read together verse 18 through 22 says for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, if that confused you, it's okay. (laughs) It is probably one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture. One of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. But what I think it means, I want to share with you what I think it means in the flow of what Peter is saying. And the first example that I want to look at that he gives is Noah. And if you understand the days of Noah, you understand that it was a wicked time. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. This is in the days of Noah. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Needless to say, it is a bleak picture of humanity. But then there's Noah. And it says in Genesis 6-8 as it goes on. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. And then a few verses later, we read, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. And Noah did so. And so tracking the line of thought here, the wickedness on the earth is great. There's this one man, Noah, who is a righteous man by faith, as Hebrews tells us, not because he was a perfect man, but because he was a man of faith and he followed God. He went against the stream, against the current to follow God and to pursue God. And then what Noah did was by faith built this ark. Now, the scriptures does not say this, but you can assume or can imagine that in a wicked culture, How much Noah must have been ridiculed or mocked or made fun of for building this ark. As he gained supplies, his ark grew bigger. What people might have said to him or about him, to his family. And yet Noah, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, for almost a century, built the ark while being ridiculed by those around him. And Noah didn't respond with retaliation or with evil or with wickedness. But he responded in faith by continuing to build the ark, but also by preaching the gospel. And I think that's what verse 19 says here. If you look at verse 19, it says this, in which he, talking about Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being Prepared. Now, there are several questions that arise from this verse, but I think the context is said there at the very end that it was in the days of Noah. And that in the days of Noah, Christ went and preached through Noah the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are now in the prison of hell for all eternity. But he did it in the times of Noah. And the reason why I think that is because in 2 Peter 2.5, it says Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And in 1 Peter 1.11, it says that the spirit of Christ preached through the prophets such as Noah of the Old Testament concerning the salvation and the Messiah that was to come. And so although Noah faced ridicule and scorn, he proclaimed the gospel of Christ. The ark stood as a symbol of of their need to repent and trust in the Savior and follow the Lord. As it goes on, you see that Noah is blessed for his righteousness. He's protected from the flood. But that those who disobey the Lord, who do evil, who do wickedness, the face of the Lord is against them and they perish. And so Noah, in many ways, is a perfect example of what Peter is trying to tell us. Noah suffered doing what was right. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. And he repaid evil with good by preaching the gospel. And in the end, Noah was blessed. He was saved through the flood. And those who did evil were punished as they perished under the flood. And so that's the example of Noah. The second example is Jesus. And Jesus is always a good example to have. Verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ is the supreme example of someone who suffered evil for doing good. Jesus Christ came into the world and he healed the lame. He made the blind see. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of hungry people. He healed the sick. He cleansed the leopard. He made the blind see. He forgave sins. And he was repaid with evil. He was repaid with persecution throughout his ministry, which culminated in the cross. Jesus is the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived. And because of his righteousness, he suffered the most evil consequences the world has ever known. He was spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, beaten, and executed. And yet Christ did not repay evil with evil. He did not repay evil with justice. He did not call down legions of angels to take him off the cross. But instead he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If suffering For doing what is right is not beyond Jesus Christ. It is certainly not beyond his followers. Now Christ, for doing what was right, was blessed. We read in verse 18 that he was made alive. And then in verse 22 that he was taken up into heaven. And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The right hand of God is the position, a supreme position. He was exalted for doing what was right, even in the face of evil, for repaying good, for paying good in retribution for evil. And here is the amazing thing. Not only was Christ blessed because of how he responded to evil, but you and I are blessed. We are blessed. Verse 18 again says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you know who the unrighteous are that Christ suffered for? It's us. We are sinful. We are evil. We are wicked in the depths of our hearts. You know yourself. You know how you think about people around you, how you think about loved ones, what you do when no one else is looking. We are wicked and evil. And yet Christ came and he took the punishment on our behalf that we could receive the blessing of God for his righteousness this is the greatest repayment of good for evil that the world has ever known that christ the righteous one the only righteous one for the wrath of god in our place and he did it all for the reason stated there in verse 18 to bring us to god when i was preparing this i thought of the song oh the deep deep love of jesus vast unmeasured boundless Free, rolling as a mighty ocean and its fullness over me underneath me all around me the current of thy love leading onward leading homeward to thy glorious rest above oh the deep deep love of jesus spread his praise from shore to shore how he loveth ever loveth changeth never never more and how he watcheth over his loved ones die to call them all his own how for them he intercedeth, watcheth over them from his throne. This is the great exchange that Christ took our wickedness and the punishment that came with us and gave us his righteousness and all the blessings that come with that. Oh the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best, tis an ocean vast a blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a haven of havens for me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Let me end with this. On October 16th, 1555, during the English Reformation, Hugh Latimer and Bishop Nicholas Ridley were chained to two stakes that were driven down into the ground, and they were set on fire for their defense of the gospel. And as the sticks started to burn, as they started to burn, in a strong, fearless voice, Vladimir shouted noble words, saying, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. My friends, we may not be called to die for the defense of the gospel. We may. But we may not. But whatever we may suffer, may we suffer in such a way that shines the love of Jesus. Whoever is doing evil against you, repay hatred with love, repay curses with blessing, repay evil with good. For this is what God has done to you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. That you did not repay us as we deserved, but that you extended grace to us and you gave us the righteousness of Christ, Lord. God, I pray that as we go back into the world and as we face those who who do evil against us, maybe because of our faith, maybe not, maybe once far away, maybe loved ones. Pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to repay evil with good.